Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 31, Magnus Maximus. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode on British Celtic culture. And here's a sample. So early in its history, Britannia became Celtic. How and why did that happen? Well, the Celtic culture had been incredibly effective at conquering and terrorizing its neighbors. It even managed to take and hold Rome for seven months and force the Romans to pay them 100 pounds of gold to leave. And then when they were measuring out the gold, Brennus threw his sword on the scale and said, Ve victus, woe to the conquered. So they're kind of, you know, badass. And they also fought at Delphi, they marched into the Balkans. The point is that they were a fierce band of wandering warriors. Wandering warriors. You see, once upon a time, they were farmers who settled in one location, but those days were long gone. The tight tribal bonds to land and neighbors had eroded, and now they were first and foremost traveling warriors. Add to this fact that they had a taste of the riches of the rest of the world, developed some wanderlust, and were also incorporating other cultures within their own culture, and you start to see what happened there. I mean, they just couldn't go back home to the Rhone. They'd changed. If you'd like to hear more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Allison, James, and Andrew for signing up already. All right, so when we left off, it was around 369 AD. Rome had regained control of the island, the barbarian conspiracy was over, and reconstruction had begun probably under the command, but not necessarily the guidance, of Count Theodosius. But for all the reconstruction that was going on, none of it was occurring north of the wall. Pfft, Picts. But as annoying as these blue raiders might be, Rome still had much bigger fish to fry. I mean, just a few years earlier, you had Valentinian getting seriously ill and naming his eight-year-old son, Gratian, as co-emperor. I mean, that's just awesome. But I'm sure he had a keen political mind and wouldn't end up at all like the other boys that were put into positions of power in Rome. And that wasn't even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you also had barbarian problems. Remember how in prior podcasts we've spoken about how this or that emperor favored barbarian tribes and either settled them within Rome or elevated them to positions of power or, you know, what have you? Well, that didn't stop. The hiring of barbarians was actually quite popular, especially given all this political unrest, since Roman-on-Roman violence wasn't very popular. They preferred to let the barbarians do the fighting. So a lot of these emperors would go out and get barbarians to fight in their civil wars. And then there would be a bunch of barbarians in the army, so once the civil war was over, what do you do with them? I mean, take the Germans, for example. As much of a quarter of the army at this period was Germanic. So the thought was that since they had them in the army, they might as well use them, and how about have them guard the frontier against other barbarians? Well, it turns out that hiring barbarians to defend the Roman frontier against other barbarians, not to mention training the best of them in Roman tactics, leadership, and whatnot, well, it turns out that that wasn't the best of ideas. I mean, who could have guessed that at least some of those barbarians would remain loyal to their homeland rather than the Romans who were paying the check? 
Of course, this is a huge oversimplification, but that is essentially one of the myriad problems that the Empire was facing as we reach the end of the 4th century. So things just aren't going too well. Meanwhile, we've got examples of potential bribes being paid to the Vodadini, one of the tribes occupying southern Scotland. Now, the archaeological records that we found might have been just loot. It might have been the result of, you know, raids and it was just loot being brought back. But certain events that we'll talk about soon give me the impression that it was probably part of a payment to acquire loyalty. And that was really nothing new for Rome. They've been buying peace for ages now. But it does give the impression that the tribes beyond the wall weren't truly peaceful. That they really were just bought off. So while the empire on the continent is having serious troubles with the barbarians, the Romano-British were also facing similar problems. And part of the reason why we know this is because we have Valentinian barking orders at his Praetorian prefects in 369, stating that they're required to reside in their official residences, keep them in good repair and properly furnished, and, you know, be good officials. Basically, he was telling them to stay where they were assigned and not wuss out and just leave. And also, please don't let it fall apart while you're out there. This is actually somewhat important because it reflects the attitude of the time regarding political office. It was seen as quite literally a burden. The upper class didn't want to do it, but still felt compelled to spend some time in office for the sake of family honor. Valentinian was basically telling them to do their jobs well, regardless of whether or not they wanted to be there. And there's an interesting bit of additional instruction that he sent along, actually. He said that the governor was not to go, quote, frequenting delightful retreats, end quote, or spend his time being entertained by the local upper classes. It doesn't look like these guys wanted to work at all. Now, despite the relative chaos of the empire around this period, there is something else to keep in mind before we get into the meat of our story. It was still illegal for Roman civilians to carry weapons unless they were given permission to do so due to a dangerous journey. This is an old Roman rule, and even during these troubling times, that rule was not relaxed. Think about that from the perspective of a Romano-Briton. You've got barbarians across the channel. You've got barbarians to the north. You've got barbarians from Ireland. You're basically surrounded, and when things get bad, even the legions start looting. But you aren't allowed to carry weapons. So given that, would you want to live out in a villa in the countryside? Probably not. You'd probably want to be in the urban centers near the only defenses that were available. And that was pretty much what happened. Anyway, so in 375, Valentinian died, and his brother Valens took over along with Valentinian's son, Gratian. But Gratian wasn't his father. And while he was emperor of the West, he dropped most of his father's people from his inner circle. That's not good, since Valentinian, while not the most popular guy in the world, was competent and religiously tolerant. And now many of his advisors that sought to continue that trend were gone. And it wasn't just a bunch of advisors who took a beating during this factional shift. Count Theodosius, you know, the guy who saved Britannia from the barbarian conspiracy? Well, he was executed in Carthage in January of 376. It's not clear why he was executed, but the timing is suspect. And his execution could not have been viewed very favorably by the Romano-Britons. And that goes doubly for the legions. But in the end, Gratian, 
and his younger brother, but he was only four years old at this point, so what does it matter, held the west, while Valens held the east. But Valens didn't hold it very long, and he died in 378. Now, Gratian basically was running the whole show. I mean, sure, he had a co-emperor, but what sort of power could his seven-year-old brother really muster? So for all intents and purposes, Gratian was in charge. The problem here is that Gratian wasn't very popular with the legions of Britannia, and we'll explain why in a minute. But there was a guy who was popular. Magnus Maximus. Yes, you heard that right. Magnus Maximus. Really, you kind of have to be popular with that name. He sounds like he should be out fighting dragons. Or at least bench-pressing grizzly bears. I mean, come on, the only way to make his name more testosterone-infused is to have the middle name be Prometheus. Magnus Prometheus Maximus. That's kind of badass. But anyways, he wasn't that lucky. He was just Magnus Maximus, which makes him infinitely more lucky than those of us who've got a name like Jamie. So anyway, Magnus Maximus was a general who the British legions thought was just nonstop awesome. And certainly cooler than Gratian. Gratian? Sounds like a discount grocery store when you think about it. Oh, I gotta drop by Gratian's to pick up some cheese. Or maybe like a lesser Sith Lord, Darth Gratian. The point is, this is not exactly the sort of name to inspire confidence. And to make matters worse, he took the throne when he was still a kid, which Rome has a long and less than positive history with. And beyond his name, he also lacked tact. For example, he dressed as a barbarian warrior after Rome's disastrous loss to the Goths at Adrianople, which actually saw the death of Emperor Valens in 378. So yeah, that's how Valens died. Death by Goths. And Gratian didn't seem to think that following the defeat, that the optics of dressing like a barbarian, which I assume involved a lot of eyeliner and black nail polish, would, you know, people off. And actually, it doesn't stop there. He was also just an awful leader. I mean, he was essentially the sole emperor at age 19, thanks to the events at Adrianople, and he basically didn't know what to do about it. The lack of military leadership is yet another way that he infuriated the legions. And frankly, he was baffled with the entire barbarian problem all the way until he got Theodosius I to take control of the east and handle it for him. Yep, Count Theodosius' son, you know, the one who stopped the barbarian conspiracy and also was executed at Carthage. Well, his son, Theodosius I, was now emperor of the east. Good for him. And for the most part, good for the East, too. Actually, it's great for the Eastern Empire, which is why he's later known as Theodosius the Great. Though it isn't too great for Gratian, since he still hadn't proven that he knew how to lead. At best, he knew how to handle HR matters. And actually, this is part of a new persistent problem for Britannia. Britannia now had a relatively unstable local imperial government, which must have been heavily contrasted with the rather stable government based in Constantinople. So there were rumblings in Britannia. And that wasn't just due to the food. So now it's 379, and in Britannia all is not well. I mean, we still have these damn barbarians raiding up and down the countryside. But let's get back to trash ingration. And to do that, let's look at his suppression of paganism. He had a kind of iron-fisted approach, and that approach didn't help his image, especially since prior emperors had been operating more or less under a sort of uneasy truce between the Christians and the pagans. 
And then along comes Gratian and he starts kicking pagans in the face. He even removed the altar of victory again from the Senate house. It was put back later on. And actually he confiscated property from the Vestal Virgins. The Christians loved it. And actually so did Ambrosius, the Bishop of Milan, who also is known as Ambrose. But you have to keep in mind that there were still quite a lot of pagans living in the empire. So playing just to your Christian audience, not to mention picking on virgins, wasn't politically savvy. And for places that were still pagan strongholds, such as Britannia, this was not exactly the most popular of moves. What I'm saying here is that people were getting really tired of Gratian, especially the legions, and none more so than the legions of Britannia. But come on, of course it's the legions of Britannia. Britannia's rebellious. In fact, a few years later, there's a panegyric that highlights how unruly and ill-tempered the British forces were. It even goes to great effort to paint them in a particularly sadistic light. Now, of course, this is a panegyric, so it needs to be taken with a whole truckload of salt, but an unruly and angry Britannia does fit in rather well with the historical record. So it seems that there might have been some truth to that. The point is that Britannia was once again primed and ready to go off. And as luck would have it, the British legions had someone in mind who was charismatic and a solid military leader. And I'm guessing here, but you know, it's an educated guess. Someone who once killed a Tyrannosaurus Rex with his bare hands. And speaking, of course, of Magnus Maximus. Okay, rather than just focusing on a severe amount of name jealousy, why don't I tell you a little bit about Magnus Maximus before we go any further. To start with, he wasn't British. He was actually a Spanish general who served under Count Theodosius and very likely came to Britannia during the campaign against the barbarian conspiracy. And actually, it seems that there was some sort of family connection between Maximus and Theodosius, though we don't know specifically what it was. They were both Spanish, but it was probably a great deal more than that. But unfortunately, we just don't know. But we do know that he was in the Western Imperial circles because he was sent to Britannia again in 380 when the emperor needed him to deal with the barbarian troubles they're having there. Now, we aren't entirely sure what his title during this period was. Some believe that he was Dux Britanniarum, but honestly, he might have just been a count like the late Count Theodosius. We can't say for sure, but regardless of his title... It only took him a year to defeat the invasion of the Picts and the Scotti. The point is, it isn't surprising that the legions of Britannia thought this guy was awesome. Hell, they were probably well acquainted with him and might have connected his presence almost like a return of their beloved Count Theodosius. Basically, he had all the hallmarks of a usurper in Britannia. However, there is one potential bit of irony here, and that is that if they selected him because they thought that he would be more kind to the pagans than Gratian, well, they had another thing coming. It turned out that Magnus Maximus also was an anti-pagan firebrand. But whatever. In 383 AD, the legions of Britannia had enough of Gratian and declared Magnus Maximus the emperor of Rome. He immediately left the island to prosecute his newly minted civil war against Gratian. That meant that he needed troops. And those troops would need to come from Britannia. It wouldn't have been hard to convince the soldiers to go, after all, this rebellion was immensely popular in Britannia, but the problem here is that a bunch of forts had to be evacuated. And guess who liked the sound of that? The Picts, the Scotty, and the Irish. Are you ready for a war? Yeah! 
Now that the defenses were weakened, they went on a rampage since they were able to assume that Emperor Magnus Maximus, can you tell I like saying that name? Anyway, they were able to assume that Emperor Magnus Maximus couldn't leave the country and abandon his civil war to defend the island. And here's the most tragic part of this story. One of the hardest hit areas of Britannia was North Wales. That's where I'm from. It's just inhumane. Now, meanwhile, on the continent, Emperor Maximus was facing off with Emperor Gratian on a battlefield near modern-day Paris. Gratian was defeated, thanks both to poor leadership as well as deserting soldiers, and while Gratian fled the scene, he was assassinated by Maximus's top military commander. Emperor Magnus Maximus now held Britannia, Gaul, and Spain. And he then continued his march to Italy, and was only stopped by an enormous force that was sent by the Eastern Emperor, Emperor Theodosius I. Now negotiations soon followed, and actually even Ambrosius, the famous Bishop of Milan, was involved. And this is going to shock the hell out of you. Maximus was recognized as Emperor of the West. Since when do British emperors ever succeed in taking power? And this further supports my theory that prior to his military career, Magnus Maximus spent his childhood arm-wrestling polar bears. So this is great for Britannia, right? I mean, we don't have a failed emperor, and therefore we won't have vicious reprisals by people that have creepy nicknames like The Chain. So everyone was happy, right? Well, I'm sure that they would have been if it wasn't for the hordes of Picts, Scotty, and Irish that were all over the island, including North Wales. But we have a savior in this story, and his name is Emperor Magnus Maximus. The thing is, is that he knew how beautiful North Wales is, and he couldn't let those damn dirty barbarian tribes mess with his strategic sheep reserves. So he returned to Britannia in 384, ready to kick some butt. And kick it he did. And I don't have any historical record to base this on, but I suspect that the kick he would have used was a roundhouse kick, the most impressive of kicks. So the Picts, Scotty, and Irish were quickly pushed out of Britannia, and some argue they sent Kinatha and the Vododini, who were British Celts from beyond the wall, to defend North Wales. But like much that happened during this period, there are a variety of opinions on what actually might have happened there. But anyway, we've got our own new shiny emperor, and we actually won something. But you know that can't last. Something bad has to happen, right? Well, the citizens of the Western Empire, including Britannia, were quickly learning exactly how extreme their new emperor was. If they thought that Gratian and his seizure of virgin property was bad, they'd be actually looking back on it with nostalgia as the good old days, because Emperor Maximus decided that it was a good idea to start executing heretics. He wasn't just extremely anti-pagan, he was also extremely anti-other kinds of Christianity. The guy was, well, hardline, basically. And then you have the potential continuing difficulties with the barbarians. Gildas mentions that the issue with the Picts didn't end for a very long time and some suggest that it could have continued into 389 or 390, which would cast a shadow on the story of the epic roundhouse kick of 384 and the assistance of the Vododini. Now, while Gildas isn't the most reliable of sources, it's not unlikely that the Picts would continue their raids and whatnot. But here's the thing. We also hear how a big part of the reason why this is happening is because Maximus sapped the defenses of the island to fund his war. 
and I'm not sure exactly how true that is. I mean, he barely had to fight Gratian, so I guess that at least most of his forces that he brought with him would have returned. Furthermore, his later actions don't indicate that he was low on manpower or that he was constantly under assault on his flank. So I find this long Pictish war to be highly unlikely. There might have been a few raids here and there, but any sort of serious invasion was probably dealt with in 384 when Emperor Maximus returned and bolstered the defenses in North Wales. I just don't think the Picts were really a major concern for Emperor Maximus. It was Emperor Theodosius and Emperor Valentinian II, the young emperor who still ruled in Italy, who were really the problems for Emperor Maximus. And by all accounts, it seems that Emperor Theodosius was preparing for a civil war. And soon, he'd get it. Four years after becoming legitimized, Emperor Maximus decided to cross the Alps and occupy Milan. His reasoning for taking Italy is pretty obvious when you think about it. Emperor Theodosius held all of the East, unchallenged. Maximus had to share his Western Empire with Valentinian II. He would never be on equal footing with a powerful Eastern Emperor until he consolidated the West. And again, do these actions strike you as the sort of thing that a military leader would do if he had a war raging on his Western flank? I mean, I just don't think that there was any serious Pictish war going on right about now. If there was, why would he start a civil war? Anyway, so now we have Emperor Maximus essentially holding all of the West and is hanging out in Milan and might have been getting some dirty looks from Bishop Ambrose. But things don't go according to plan for him. Emperor Theodosius had been planning for this, and as a result, he was able to evacuate Valentinian II, as well as his court. He had them put on ships that slipped right past Emperor Maximus's fleet. Meanwhile, Emperor Theodosius mustered ground troops and had them march upon his rival, meeting him at Illyricum. And there, Maximus and his forces were forced to retreat. And then Theodosius pursued him again to Aquileia, and in August of 388... Emperor Magnus Maximus and his army were defeated, and Maximus was killed. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the forces that Emperor Maximus had at his disposal, so we can't say how many of the British legions were lost in battle. Hell, we can't even be sure that any British legions were actually there. He might have just taken barbarian forces, since Romans fighting against other Romans was rather unseemly. And actually, Maximus told Bishop Ambrose that he had large numbers of barbarians in his army. So while we do know that there were forts that were abandoned around this period, we can't say whether or not that was due to the loss of manpower or whether they were just shut down due to troop reorganization and transfers to other parts of the island. I mean, we do see a sort of reimagining of defense, with the idea being that it's better to have a few very well-defended areas rather than a lot of weakly defended spots. For example, legionary fortresses were significantly upgraded while other forts were abandoned, and as we've spoken about in earlier podcasts, towns were being upgraded so as to function as strongholds in times of war. So we just don't know how many Britons were actually lost in this battle. But that being said it still would have been tough on the Romano-Britons. While there might not have been a total collapse of their defensive posture, there certainly would have been extremely high taxes for the period under Emperor Magnus Maximus. Wars are expensive, and this one was no exception. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that some of the Britons were ruining the day that they put this guy in power, 
due to the fact that he was executing people on religious grounds and very likely unjustly confiscating property. There we go. That's the sort of down note I like to end my podcasts on. So let's stop there, with Britannia once again getting the shaft. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always head over to the website. It's thebritishhistorypodcast.com. You can also join us at the forum, which you can get a link on that website, or you can just type in thebritishhistorypodcast.com slash forum. You can also reach us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. Or if you want to email me directly, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>